Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Last spring, I visited a vintage store called House of Rack on one of the main shopping drags in Edmonton. All of the clothes inside used to belong to one woman, Betty Joan Rack. I had come here to see a collection of clothing that I had only heard about on the news, and because I wanted to learn more about the woman who owned it. And, if I'm honest, I went because I wanted to find something that maybe I could wear too. Because it's not often you get to take home a piece of a story, like the story of Betty Joan Rack. Hey, I'm Macy Rowe. This is The Doc Project. And that is CBC Edmonton producer Alex Zabjek. Last year, through the deep days of COVID winter, there was one story in Edmonton that was a bright light for Alex. It starts, somewhat unexpectedly, with an obituary. Betty Joan Rack, known as Madame Rack to her students, taught classical piano for over 50 years. She died on November 18th, 2020, at the age of 76, following a brief illness. Rack was also a fashion lover who over the decades amassed an impressive collection of clothing. Alex didn't know Betty. Back then, she had never even heard of Betty. But Vince Anderson, he knew her. She was four foot ten, and, you know, moved around the city uh, on the transit system, so thousands of people saw her every day, but discounted her at one you know, just at one glance as an eccentric old lady, somebody's aunt or grandmother, uh, when in fact she she led the most, the richest interior life uh, through her studies and through her travels and relationships and as I'm finding out, through her possessions and acquisitions over the years. Alex, who was drawn to her for reasons she couldn't exactly pinpoint at the time, set out to unravel Betty's story through the people and memories and things she left behind. The story starts on Edmonton's White Avenue at a pop-up shop, part estate sale, part boutique, and part autobiography told hanger by hanger through Betty Jones' clothes. Alex Zabjek will take it from here. The story was on the second floor of a strip mall next to a German delicatessen and there was a placard out front that pointed me toward the shop upstairs. On that placard was a black and white image of a woman wearing a 1950s style skirt, super cinched at the waist, and then it flares out with pleats. She's wearing a wide-brimmed hat that's dramatic and fits perfectly with the vibe of that era. I loved it, and I couldn't wait to go inside. So I put on a mask and headed up the stairs. Hello. Hello. Hey, Mark, it's Alex. Good, how are you? My name is Mark Frost. I am the co-owner of House of Rack, uh, which highlights the clothing collection of Betty Joan Rack. And I am also 
have been in the vintage clothing business for the last 30 years. This is so cool. Like there's so much cool stuff in this little shop. Can you just give me like the basic rundown of what you have here? This is her collection of clothing that spanned from really the 1930s through to uh, current uh, late 2000s. Um, and it's a little bit of everything from skirts and dresses and blouses and lingerie, shoes, purses, uh, other accessories. It really covers the whole gambit. Mark has carefully curated a selection of clothes onto a number of movable wardrobe racks. Coats on one rack, evening wear on another, sweaters on yet another. Everything's presented in a way that draws you in to the different eras of each garment. Decades of fashion on display in a space about the size of a living room. I like the older, like she had a lot of uh, 1950s, 1960s party and prom dresses. Her sweet spot was really in the 1980s. Um, She definitely had a taste for the eclectic. And so we see a lot of stuff that was, you know, bright colors, really crazy cuts, typical for the 1980s, you know, the big hair, big shoulders. You know, if you were going to work or whatever, this wasn't the kind of stuff that you would see. This was going out to make an impression. I asked Mark about the most lavish piece he found. And he told me about a Christian Dior couture sheepskin coat in mint condition. It would have cost about $10,000 back in the day. And Mark sold it for almost $2,000 online. I wanted to find something more within my budget. So I'm going through some of the racks here. And there is just an impeccably cute lilac colored kind of sweater vest with little pearls. And it's something I probably would never normally think about buying for myself, but I got to admit, it's pretty cute. And I think it would fit. And Mark, is this kind of the almost moo-moo section of the store? No, this is just like, there's a little bit of everything. You know, she went from moo-moo to, to sleek. Some of it, uh, you know, maybe would be considered gaudy or a little bit too flashy, but I don't think she really worried. Betty Joan Rack died in November 2020, and the people tasked with going through her house found a lot of interesting things, including a clothing collection with thousands of items, enough for Mark to open his pop-up store. Mark estimates there were more than 10,000 items in Betty Joan Rack's wardrobe when he bought it. Here's how he described it to a local news reporter at the time. I've never seen anything like this myself, nor have I heard about something like this. There's been boxes that I've opened up where I almost started crying. Like it was the, the, the quality of, and the condition that stuff was in. I knew the box hadn't been opened for 20 years. I loved the variety that I saw and how well-preserved everything was. Coats from the 70s that would still keep you warm today. Those delicate sweaters with the tiny perfect buttons a gold lamé party dress? Who was this shopper who loved all these different styles? Mark never knew Betty Joan in life, but he spent months going through all her stuff. And he's gotten a sense of the woman from what she's left behind, like piecing together a puzzle made out of silk scarves and leather pumps. In doing this, we really 
we got individual snapshots of her life and what she liked and what she didn't like and and you know kind of how she she saw the world i think she uh she viewed the world through um you know she was a piano teacher i think she had definitely an artistic flair and that's how she presented herself you know there was an art to what she did definitely and there literally were snapshots of Betty Joan Rack. She took Polaroid uh, pictures of a large portion of the stuff that she had. She would put the outfit on, and before she left the house or whatever, it seemed to me that she would take a picture of it. There was pictures from probably the 80s where she would be wearing this beautiful gown with the shoes to match, uh, you know, formal dress gloves, a hat, a scarf, um, there would be glasses sometimes, and all the jewelry, like it was the whole ensemble. And that outfit was meant to be seen. And so there was album upon album upon album of Polaroid pictures. If there would have been an Instagram in 1982, she would have been running the show, I think. Like, this isn't somebody that was from L.A. or New York or London or Paris. This was somebody who lived in downtown Edmonton and uh, the flair for fashion and her taste and the eclectic nature of the entire thing was just wonderful, really. Betty Joan obviously had a more sophisticated sense of style and dedication to fashion than most people. So how did that square with what many assumed was her simple day-to-day life as a piano teacher. I mean, there were simple items in her wardrobe, like a basic plaid frock that I could imagine her wearing while sitting beside kids at the piano. I got in touch with one of the students who knew her best. Vince Anderson first met Betty Joan when he was a child. This is him playing more recently. He was taking lessons with Betty Joan right up until she passed. Having known her for decades, I figured he might have some answers. I, I always said, you know, even before Betty Joan passed away, when she was a young woman, I never saw her in the same outfit twice. So over a period of 10 years, two lessons a week, I never saw her in the same piece of clothing twice. My name is Vince Anderson. I'm a lifelong resident of Edmonton. And I guess I would best describe myself as semi-retired after a long and successful IT career. I went back to my first uh, love, which was music, and now I play professionally across the city. My first lesson with Betty Joan was in September of 1969. I was only six at the time, so do your math. Betty Joan Rack was living with her parents in the North Glenora neighborhood where I lived, and that was a logical place to go. So we, I took lessons with her from age six through 16. And Betty Joan Rack is the reason Vince found his way back to the piano as an adult. He was in his early 40s and had long drifted away from playing regularly. It had been decades since his last lesson with Betty Joan. And I encountered Betty Joan waiting for a bus, um, as she always did. And I mentioned that I had bought a new piano and she said, well, we'll have to start lessons again. And indeed we did very shortly after that. And despite the absence of 25 years, all those years, decades melted away and we just ended up beginning where we had left off so many years before. It was one of those Karate Kid moments, right? The master has called. So I really 
it felt great at the time and to this day it felt like the best decision I ever made. Vince credits Betty Joan for his success as a musician and says Betty Joan was an immensely talented piano player herself. He told me that even as a teen, she was recognized as an accomplished musician, so much so that she was featured on a local Edmonton radio program. Then he told me he actually has that recording from 1960. This week, we feature the piano playing of Betty Joan Rack, who will open her recital with the Bach Prelude and Fugue in A-flat major, number 17 of the Well-Tempered Clavier, volume 1. When she was interviewed on the show, Betty Joan told the host her father was a tailor and how she too liked to sew. Well, I make dresses and mostly stuff for myself because it's so hard to buy things that fit, so mm-hmm. I mostly sew for myself. I see. Any other hobbies besides sewing and golf? Do you find time for anything else? Or is it just music? Well, I don't really have too much time for anything else. I like dancing, though. Like, jiving and that. Just, you know, when I want to go out and let my hair down. I love hearing her voice and that teenage shyness. And the interview gives me a little more insight into why she loved clothes so much. When she was young, she had to make her own. That she could sew and make it beautiful, that's a skill and talent I admire. And Vince told me he thought she was brilliant in so many ways. She had an intellect that was just towering and just being born a woman, you know, in the 40s, she was never given the opportunity to really develop that intellect other than through music. And I I fully think that she would be, if she was in her 30s today, she'd be working for Google or Facebook. You know, she would have been a software engineer that could have done amazing things. As I'm learning more about Betty Joan, it seems to me that she was larger than life. But when she was alive, she certainly didn't attract much attention. I scanned for news clippings about her, and the only one I found was from 2017, when she was awarded a City of Edmonton Salute to Excellence Citation Award. It was to recognize all of her work as a music teacher. Vince told me Betty Joan's life revolved around her students. She had no children of her own, although she had been married for several years. This part of my conversation with Vince really intrigued me. She, of course, had been divorced in the late 1970s, uh, continued to live with her ex-husband as friends uh, under the same roof. Okay, you said so much here. So she divorced from her husband in the 70s, and they still lived together right up until she passed? Or until he passed, I guess, a few years ago. It's a rare story, but yes, when they uh, got divorced, they realized that they were still very good companions. It was very strange and actually kind of a beautiful relationship that they had. Over the years, Betty Joan became more than a teacher to Vince. I was her closest friend, at least in the last few years. And when her husband, Jim, passed away, over three years ago now. Um, She made sure that everything was set up so that I could uh, take over her affairs 
even though she was, you know, totally independent until the day she passed away. Vince told me Betty Joan had suffered a fall, later developed an infection, and died in hospital shortly after. She was 76. Suddenly, Betty Joan's home became his responsibility, and Vince was shocked and overwhelmed when he went through all of the rooms. When I saw the the size of the job to clean out the house, it was, it was pretty daunting, let me tell you. But then uh, I connected with Alex. Hi, I'm Alex Archbold, and I've been buying and selling antiques since I was nine years old. From basements to scrapyards, I'll look just about anywhere I can to find lost antiques and collectibles. And sometimes I'll go big and buy everything. With my Alex Archibald is an antiques dealer in Edmonton who runs a YouTube channel about his finds. Vince approached Alex because they'd met about five years earlier, outside Alex's store, when Vince was helping Betty Joan clear out her garage. Alex remembers that moment well. The gentleman rode up on a bicycle and he said, uh, do you buy antiques? I said, yeah, that's, we're opening up an antique store. We Sure we do. Uh, he said, what about old cars? I said, yeah, I, I love old cars. And he said that his piano teacher, um, when he was a kid, had a 1964 Cadillac. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He said, no, she still has it. It hasn't moved in probably 20 years. It's sitting in the garage and she needs it gone. Vince put Alex in touch with Betty Joan. So I made an offer and that's how I met Betty Joan for the first time. She was very sort of flowery. Uh, She had lots of colorful layers. Um, She had ribbons in her hair. She had probably like five or six rings on each finger. Some might say eccentric. Some might say, you know, very fashionable. And uh, I was just, you know, taken in by her character and her personality. And just thought, what a lovely lady. Fast forward five years. Betty Joan has died. And Vince now needs Alex to help clear out her house. And Alex is also shocked by what he sees in the small bungalow. It wasn't until we opened the door into the kitchen and some of the other rooms that I realized that this was a little bit more uh, of an extreme situation. And the house was full, you know, in some areas right up to the roof where you had to climb on top of piles to get through places. It was the most insane adventure I've probably been on. Underneath all that... The bed was still turned down, ready to sleep in. We got this all hauled out of the way. and Alex had been documenting his discoveries on YouTube. As I'm emptying out trash, I'm finding magazines that are piled in a corner. There is something here. You know, they always say, oh, check the magazines. You never know what's inside. Well, I'm fluttering through these magazines and kind of holding them by the spine. And I'm, I'm you know, waving it back and forth. Holy cow. And little slim silver bars start falling out of the magazines. And it went far beyond little silver bars. That, folks, is a bar of silver. It's 100 ounces of silver. People always say, check the mattress. Check under the mattress. I don't see any cuts. What else is going to be in this room? Eventually, that made it to the news. That's how I first heard about Betty Joan Rack. And the more they discovered in her house, the more I wanted to know. You know, coffee cans uh, full of coffee next to coffee cans that I opened and were full of money. And I'm not talking like $100. I'm talking like over $1,000. And before I met Betty Joan, I, I was told she needed the car gone, but also she didn't really have a whole lot of money. And that uh, selling the car might uh, help her out with getting some money for travel. She liked to go to Hawaii. 
And I kind of laughed to myself when I found maybe the first thousand or two thousand dollars. I thought, well, gee, she didn't need to sell the Cadillac to me at all. She could have gone on this vacation if she just would empty out this coffee can. We found a bank statement from the 1980s and it showed that she had over four, almost five million dollars in the bank in the 1980s. That's a crazy sum of money even today. Of course, I wondered. Where did all of that money come from? She had lived in a modest post-war bungalow in Edmonton and took the bus everywhere. How do I reconcile that woman with the one who owned a $10,000 Christian Dior coat? I learned from Vince, her close friend and former student, that her father, the tailor, had many high-profile clients. Her mother owned a beauty salon and at some point inherited money from a relative. Plus, Betty Joan was an only child, with no children of her own. It probably all just added up. But the mountain of wealth she was sitting on? It was just the tip of a private, glamorous iceberg. She definitely enjoyed her travels, loved her annual vacations to Hawaii. She had a gentleman companion through these travels. Um, well over six foot tall, blonde, former UCLA javelin thrower called Bobby Frank Brown. Not that Bobby Brown. Bobby Frank Brown. This is his song, Sailor the Boy, from the album Prayers of a One Man Band. He was a musician himself very avant-garde psychedelic music in the 1970s. I got online, and it took a while, but I managed to track him down, in Nevada. He told me he's busy starting a church, writing a book, and working on his music. Hi, can you hear me? That's better. But what I needed to know was about his relationship with Betty Joan. It started about 40 years ago, when he was busking on a beach in Hawaii. I was playing music at King's Alley uh, in Waikiki. Betty would always come for, boy, I don't know, 50 years or something. And whenever I was playing, Betty and her mom would come, you know, and, you know, she was like, over the years, my, my biggest fan, you know, that's that's where we met, and she loved Hawaii. She'd stay in the best hotels and dressed to the hilt in all kinds of clothes and looking so colorful. He told me that he and Betty Joan traveled together, going everywhere from China to Russia. It was a romance for many years, and then a close friendship. They bonded, of course, over music. I knew she was a very good piano player. She was a bit of a prodigy, but... She worked very hard, and, and so hard that she would say that she had never been free. Uh, on our trip, she felt free. She, it was, she said it was the best time of her life and stuff sometimes, you know, because we didn't have an itinerary and we just go with the wind. In some ways, this is a stark contrast to the Betty Joan from Edmonton a music teacher with hundreds of students who took the bus everywhere and lived in the same house for decades. On the other hand, these stories make sense. Betty Joan was a colorful character who clearly did have an appetite for adventure. 
Bobby Frank says when they weren't together, he and Betty Jones spoke on the phone every day. Well, she was my best friend, yeah. You know, uh, super, super close. Like Vince, Bobby Frank has fond memories of his conversations with Betty Joan. I could talk to her about anything for hours and hours and never be bored. She knew how to really get along with people. Everybody really liked her, you know. I really miss the, the intimacy that we had. And, you know, over the years, that, that really seemed to, there was a bit of a mind meld between her and I. We would know, you know, what each thought of something almost before we said it. But, you know, we, we talk incidentally about anything, politics, religion, sex, culture, whatever. And uh, it was almost like talking to your mom who isn't your mom. You know, the topics you can't talk to your mom. Well, you could talk to anything with Betty Joan. Betty Joan developed such good relationships with others. And yet, so few people knew what was going on inside her house. The piles of clothing, the boxes stacked to the ceilings, the drawers that overflowed with papers. Even Vince had no idea. To the end, I would have called Betty Joan the least materialistic person I know. She always said, learning music is important because it's not like a possession. You can't take, nobody can take it away from you. To square the person who said that with the person who accumulated all that stuff is, you know, I got to admit, had some difficulty doing that. The sheer volume of possessions, that, that in itself was enlightening. Massive amounts of books and literature, uh, beautiful ornaments, beautiful dishes, silverware, uh, wonderful antique items forgotten for decades. I was really sad, I guess, that this lovely lady had lived in these conditions, that, that she had a, a full house. Uh, I think it was a three-bedroom home, but she only had enough room to live on the couch in the front living room. I questioned myself several times, you know, was I remiss in not offering help? Because she clearly needed it. When talking to people about Betty Joan, whether it be close friends or recent acquaintances, there's something that keeps coming up about her collections. Who knew? Even myself. Uh, the extent of her, you know, of her acquisitions, but also of her activities and the, the way her mind must have, uh, the way her mind must have operated still astounds me in her own way, even though she was a hoarder. The lady that lived there, we thought was an eccentric hoarder. Betty Joan is gone. And I'm not in the business of diagnosing people, especially when I can't talk to them. But hoarder or not, one thing is clear. This massive collection, the same thing that makes people, in hindsight, question her well-being, it didn't get in the way of her having a full, vibrant life. And it's left a legacy that's captured the imaginations of so many. Alex, Mark, and honestly, me. Betty Joan had an eye for unique and pretty things. She seemed to find joy in them. I think there's beauty in that. I wanted to see if I could find a piece of that legacy to keep with me. So I went back to Mark's pop-up shop. And then Mark picked up a dress. 
It's a black dress with a, a kind of a waterfall pattern on it. It's got a half a dozen uh, buttons, uh, mother of pearl or pearl-like buttons across the bodice, Peter Pan collar, really nice cut, just beautiful. I feel like that might almost fit me. Yeah, I would, I would say it would definitely fit you. I do love a really nicely tailored dress and the black and white waterfall is just a little bit cinched at the waist. It's just got a little bit of flair to make it interesting, but still just super classic. I'm kind of falling in love with it. I tried on the dress and thought about why Betty Joan would have kept it. Maybe for the beautiful cut or the classic detailing, stuff that I was now admiring. And I smile at how she lived her life, how she wanted. She kept living with her ex-husband, defying the gendered relationship norms of the day. What a boss. She loved travel and squeezed every possible bit of adventure that she could into her trips. That's how I want to travel. It's amazing to think of the secret lives of people all around us. If only we take the time to see them. Betty Joan Rack brought some magic into my world just by being who she was. Alex Zabjek. That doc was produced by Alex. It was edited by Sherry Okeke with me, AC Rowe. It was mixed by Tanera McLean. Alex Archbold, the antiques dealer, has set up the Betty Joan Rack Piano Scholarship. It provides a $1,000 scholarship annually for piano instruction in Alberta. It's priority given to new Canadians. The scholarship will be administered by the Alberta Registered Music Teachers Association. Vince Anderson spent months restoring Betty Jones' house to all of its mid-century modern glory. The house now holds a music studio called Madame Rack's Studio. Vince commissioned a local sculptor to create two pieces of artwork featuring music symbols to hang on the front of the house. One of them includes a quarter rest symbol. As Vince says, the final rest that Betty Joan is enjoying now. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but I have a question for you. What is black and white, rowdy, potentially divisive, and has Edmonton written all over it? The answer, when we're back. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. And I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. When you ask Edmontonians, what's the most obvious thing about the city's natural landscape? Number one, they'll say the River Valley. It's North America's longest stretch of urban park, a true point of pride for the city. But right behind that, they'll likely say magpies. Edmonton is indeed the black-billed magpie capital of the world. That's Chris Fisher. He's a wildlife biologist. 
The black-billed magpie, which is famous in Edmonton, is a bird of the northern plains here in North America. So they don't quite reach Vancouver and they don't quite get over to Toronto. They're really kind of the core of the Great Plains, all the way up to the Northwest Territories, all the way down to Kansas and Colorado. Chris wrote the book about birds in Alberta. It's literally called Birds of Alberta. Certainly their outward appearance is very dynamic and very exciting. That black and white plumage with an excellent elongated tail that shimmers in light and surprises us. You know, normally we see the black and white and we dismiss it every now and then, but when you get one in brilliant sunshine, you take a second, third, fourth look at it because the plumage suddenly is no longer just boring black and white. It radiates with all the colors of a kaleidoscopic rainbow. It's true, they are beautiful birds understated and then bam, almost like an opal shimmering with secret colors. But it's not just their plumage or pervasiveness that makes them synonymous with Edmonton. If you live in a part of the country that does not have magpies, think of what the raccoon is to Toronto or rain is to Vancouver, something that is completely entwined with a place's identity and iconography. But that isn't, by any means universally loved. Doc Project producer and resident Edmontonian, Tanera McLean, will take it from here. If you ask an Edmontonian about magpies, their inflection on the word magpies will tell you immediately which magpie team they're on. It would be something like, oh yeah, magpies, or ugh, magpies. They are either loved or hated. There are no passive passengers on the Edmonton Blackfield Magpie debate train. It sounds absurd, but magpies in Edmonton aren't just birds. They've become part of the city's identity. Dare I say the unofficial mascot? To paint you a picture of how entrenched this bird is, here are a few facts. We have not one, but two Twitter accounts dedicated to speaking from the perspective of Edmonton magpies. Gift shops have postcards, t-shirts, and mugs donning magpies as a memento and symbol of time spent in Edmonton. A giant mural in Edmonton's downtown is a kaleidoscopic vision of two perched magpies, cheekily ignoring you, but also basking in the glory of your attention. The city has an art installation in a park called the Magpie's Nest, but a lot of people call it Magpie Park. There was even a very small push to redesign Edmonton's flag to include a magpie. So why are we, in Alberta's capital city, so consumed by the magpie? Not long ago, I was having a pleasant discussion with a group of my Edmonton friends, but I asked what might be considered an impolite question. What do you guys think about magpies? I I don't get it. I I honestly had no idea what magpies were, like, before moving out here, so like you said... It's like politics or religion. You don't bring up magpies unless you want to start a debate. It's a bird that's just nasty and loud you can't go outside uh, without them squawking away my 
initial impression was like, oh, that's a really cool looking bird. But I feel like more and more as the novelty wore off, they started falling under the category of uh, a little bit more annoying. Like a, Yeah, I feel like I kind of need to defend them now <laughs> in terms of give them a little bit of some leg up. Yeah, I think I think you got to appreciate what's native to Alberta and recognize that it probably has a role somehow. They are kind of, okay, uh, I'll give them their due. They're kind of cool because like, they are intelligent birds, right? Like, um, I remember This I is not even the that. only conversation like this that I have been part of in the past couple of weeks. When I told a couple of curling buddies that I was making this documentary about magpies in Edmonton, without missing a beat, the debate started. I stayed out of it. The thing I probably like most about magpies is just how much drama and emotion they bring into our very own lives. You know, it is a bird that is found in pretty much everyone's backyard. If people don't have a backyard, they are found in the parks and riverside trails that we explore. So it is a bird that comes into our lives and it reminds us that the natural world is out there. And not only that it's out there, we're not completely in control of it. I'm Chris Fisher. I'm the co-author of Birds of Alberta and a professional wildlife biologist and also a big fan of black-billed magpies. Chris is pro-magpie, but he gets why some people don't like them. Magpies certainly have a great ability to create frustration by many residents in Edmonton simply because they rip through the garbage or eat the pet foods or they will eat some of the fruit or other things that are put in the backyard. They're quite noisy as well. But it's really the behaviors that really are attributed to them simply outsmarting not only the pets but many Edmonton and area residents. You've got to think hard. You got to think really hard to outsmart a backyard magpie. That is their domain. You may think of it as your backyard, but the black-billed magpies in your neighborhood have other thoughts. Chris says magpies have always been part of the area. They're native prairie birds that have evolved in tandem with larger animals like bears, wolves, and bison in Alberta. And that ability to evolve means the land Edmonton has been built on is a perfect place for magpies to call home. One of the things that makes Edmonton such a great home for black-billed magpies is the amount of urban forests that there are, particularly white spruce, which most people will know makes great nesting habitat for black-billed magpies. Edmonton has a huge network of urban forest. Couple that with a large amount of ornamental fruit trees like crab apples and the usual available trash of an urban center, and bingo. This is a magpie paradise. Magpie encounters are so ubiquitous here, it's not uncommon for people to talk about magpies playing tricks on their pets. Well, many pet owners in the Edmonton area who keep their pets outside and a dog dish outside will know very well that magpies team up to outsmart their pets. 
and they'll surround the pet, usually perched on the edge of the fence. Two or three members of them will squawk, gain the pet's attention, and a third or fourth or fifth member will dive in and pick up some food. And then they'll rotate, work as a tandem, work as a team in order to outsmart the pet who may or may not even know that it's defending a valuable food source. When I asked Chris why magpies are so mischievous, he laughed and told me it's a perfect description because a flock of magpies is called a mischief. To understand the qualities that make magpies so annoying to some people, you have to understand what bird family they come from. Black-bell magpies are a representative of the Corvidae family, crows, jays, and ravens. And elsewhere in Alberta, we have things like Stellar's jays and Clark's nutcrackers. Clark's nutcrackers are known for hiding thousands of seeds in different places and their ability to remember where they hid all of them through the winter. That takes the box for a corvid family member. The corvids are the very most intelligent family of songbirds. And that, of course, is one of the reasons why people have very strong opinions about magpies is because they don't abide by the normal sets of rules that society likes to have. You know that nosy and awkward friend or family member who just can't read the room? Well... Magpies are kind of like that, but for them, the behavior is all about survival. They're very curious, and that curiosity is one of the very most important aspects that make magpies a success. There are few other behaviors of birds that are so conspicuous and easy to observe, right in our very own backyards. You put a shiny object, you put something in the backyard, and minutes later, there's magpies that have come to investigate it, whether they can feed on it or just manipulate it. Chris says this curiosity is one aspect of why magpies are so intelligent. Because magpies are so well distributed, not only here in North America, but also in Europe, they've been test subjects for uh, animal behaviorists. And uh, black-billed magpies, Certainly they have the ability to recognize themselves in mirrors, which is an indication for anyone who has taken child psychology courses of a fairly advanced mental state. It is no surprise that some of the greatest birds at problem solving and demonstrating intelligence, uh, such as black-billed magpies, would be able to see themselves and recognize themselves and mirror themselves in a reflective surface. But it's not just all work. They're intensely playful. Like many corvids, certainly the greatest corvid of them all, the common raven, uh, known throughout history and First Nations mythology about being extraordinarily playful and intelligent. In British Isle folklore, magpies are said to herald certain omens, depending on how many cross your path at the same time. One's for sorrow, two's for joy, three's for a girl and four's for a boy, five's for silver, six for gold, seven's for a secret, 
And likely quite a few would have crossed your path. Generally, you would see magpies in groups and not alone. The other aspect that makes them tremendously adaptive and successful is the fact that they're very social. They have the ability to share information and learn from one another. The word magpie is sometimes used to describe a person who likes to gossip. That's because magpies talk to each other a lot. They kind of gossip about which humans have been good to them and friendships they've made with humans. But they also gossip about which humans have not been good to them. There's a group memory that can develop among our neighborhood bands of black-billed magpies. The squawking and vocalizations that we hear constantly from magpies are no accident. They're in continuous communication. In speaking with people, it doesn't take long to have some people come out with some very treacherous stories of magpies being very aggressive to them. And usually this is a little bit of retaliation on the magpie part. They no doubt learn that certain individuals are up to no good. And when you tangle with one magpie, you tend to tangle with numerous magpies. There is evidence of this online. Just search magpies swooping and you'll find videos of magpies letting folks know how they feel about them. At first the videos, you know, are kind of funny, but then you start to wonder what it would feel like to be chased by a group of angry birds. So believe people when they say that the neighborhood's magpies don't like them and they come after them on walks. It's probably not a random circumstance and more than likely that that individual may have done something to earn the distrust of their neighborhood magpies. But they do trust and look after each other. There's the apparent phenomenon of magpies holding funerals. Videos have been taken of magpies gathered around the dead body of another magpie, taking turns standing by their dead family member, calling up into the air in apparent grief and sorrow. While science can't say for sure if they're holding a funeral, there is something eerily familiar about that scene that speaks to something in us as humans. Chris says because of these human characteristics, curiosity, resourcefulness, playfulness, loyalty, we recognize ourselves in the magpie. Black-billed magpies have a lot of characteristics that are similar to our very own characteristics, and that may be one of the reasons why we are so passionate one way or another about them. I used to walk or ride my bicycle to school most of the time in Lethbridge. And as you walk in, there would always be magpies either down on the path by your feet or up along the edge of the building. As I was walking underneath these, these magpies, I always had this feeling that there was a bit of judgment, a little bit of maybe they weren't so happy that I was leaving. I became quite friendly with them. My name is Kevin Sane. I'm an artist from Edmonton. I work mainly in sculpture. And I made my first magpie sculpture in 2016 for a show in Lethbridge. Lethbridge is a city in southern Alberta, 
about 500 kilometers south of Edmonton. Kevin lived there for 15 years, working in the University of Lethbridge Arts Department. He's very familiar with magpies because Lethbridge also has a lot of them. When I was in Lethbridge, I didn't feel the embrace of the magpies the way I do up here. I, I feel like people tolerate magpies in Lethbridge and they're interested in them, but there's not that same kind of embrace of them. Kevin is known for his realistic cast bronze magpie art. He did his first piece right before moving to Edmonton about five years ago. That sculpture was called Last Meal of the Magpies, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to Da Vinci's Last Supper. The piece is a long wooden beam on a thin black stand. It kind of looks like a minimalist trestle bridge. And on the wooden beam, a solitary row of 12 magpies, each with their own cheeky character. I sort of intended to pose them the same way as the characters in, in that painting. And so, you know, if they, if one was reaching out an arm, then I, I sort of picked one of the bird's legs up and made it sort of reaching into the center. That art piece actually came in handy when Kevin moved to Edmonton. The city was looking for proposals for a public art installation in a neighborhood park. And it didn't take long before Kevin realized that there was something different about the way people thought about magpies in Edmonton. I had heard that uh, Edmonton was the magpie capital of Canada, and I think it was just sort of said tongue-in-cheek when I heard it, but I kind of glommed onto that and thought, well, what a great idea. The magpies would be a perfect fit. Kevin and a collaborating artist named Chai Duncan won that commission. The installation is a series of smaller stations, all set up on plinths, Each station has a grouping of painted cast bronze magpies sitting on or in a welded steel frame. The steel frames have brightly colored geometric shapes. One kind of looks like a traditional house, another one looks like a sphere, and so on. The overall concept focuses on home and the idea that we all find home in different ways. The art is so intriguing because you can reach out and touch one of these lifelike birds. Some of the neighbors came by just while we were out there with ladders and and getting ready to install, and and they were quite excited. They were clasping their hands and, and saying, oh, this is great, you know, this is really fantastic. You know, why do we love magpies? It's kind of for the same reason we hate them. I think they they ref- reflect us back to them, and we have a love-hate relationship with humans, I think, too. It's kind of like nature's actually reaching out to us. It, it does it at times, and you, you feel like there's a, another intelligence. You don't feel alone. I, th- I think that's pretty great. I live in an old leafy neighborhood in Edmonton. In my backyard, I'm lucky to have two giant apple trees and a large lilac tree. They are stunning in summer, but they're also hauntingly beautiful in winter. And part of that beauty is the constant stream of magpies swaying in the wind on the upper branches with their long black tails and blue-green-black feathers glistening in the sunlight on a cold day. I often open my windows just to hear them chittering and calling to each other. It's a comforting sound. 
It's the soundtrack of my city. And I suppose it's that proximity that gives me, and maybe all of us in Edmonton, some of those strong feelings about magpies. They are always there, whipping up your garbage, eating your berries, having extremely loud conversations while you're trying to read a book or just take a nap. Like family, the longer you share space with them, the more annoying they may become. Magpies are our neighbors, and it's quite natural to develop emotional ties to magpies in a very sympathetic way as well. But also like family, the more you grow, the more time you spend with them, the more you learn about them, the more you start to realize that some of those really annoying habits actually make them pretty special. If I were to see a, a human in a black-billed magpie, I, I, I think they would be like that kid in high school that was not necessarily the most popular kid, but was a little bit annoying. And then 20 years later, their name pops up on social media and, and they're a, a tech guru who has become the most successful student from your graduation class. Their characteristics that may be a little bit of annoying in youth are really incredibly valuable to succeed in life. The attributes that they have, the curiosity, the playfulness, their ability to socialize, those are all really incredible assets that allow them to be you know, some of the most successful folks that we have. Black-billed magpies have the ability to, to adapt and withstand. They have done so on the Great Plains for tens of thousands of years. As an underdog, they often get disparaged by many people, but there's no quit in magpies. So where do I land on the debate? Okay, I'll be honest with you. I love magpies. I love how incredibly human they seem. I love how intelligent and tricky they are. They're loyal and dedicated to their communities. Yeah, sure, they're annoying at times, but aren't we all? Aren't we all just trying to survive, but have a little fun along the way? You know, kind of like a magpie. The greatest gift that humans have is the ability to think and solve problems. And this is an ability that has been used by black-billed magpies for themselves to be successful. Not only 10,000 years ago, but in the modern day. Those same characteristics are the characteristics that we need to move forward as well for us to be able to solve the problems that arise in our own lives. Chris Fisher and Kevin Sane. We also heard from Tej Swatch, Stephanie Dubois, and David St. Germain. That doc was produced and mixed by Tanera McLean. It was edited by Kent Hoffman. In there, you heard a song called Magpie by the Unthanks. It's a modern version of an old nursery rhyme from the British Isles about how magpies can predict your future. And in your future, the credits. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Sherry O'Keke, Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, Joan Weber, and me. 
Althea Manassen is our digital producer, and our interim senior producer is Kent Hoffman. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.